welcome to season two of Cheek by Jowl's podcast, Not True But Useful. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins. These episodes are going out into the world at a time when theatre is in suspended animation. So as an antidote, I'll be chatting to Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director-designer duo behind Cheek by Jowl. They're going to share life lessons that they've learned from staging great classic plays, which might help tide us through these strange times. We can't promise that any of these lessons will be true, but we hope you find them useful. Our play of the week is The Tempest by William Shakespeare, and here's a quick synopsis before we begin. This is supposedly Shakespeare's last play, and it tells the story of an isolated island, occupied only by a magician, Prospero, his daughter, Miranda, and his two slaves. One of them's a spirit called Ariel, and the other is the island's only native inhabitant, Caliban. Twelve years beforehand, Prospero had been Duke of Milan, but his brother Antonio overthrew him with the aid of Alonso, King of Naples, and Alonso's brother, Sebastian. They put Prospero and his baby daughter, Miranda, out to sea, and they washed up on this island. At the beginning of the play, Antonio, Sebastian, and Alonso, along with Alonso's son, Ferdinand, are sailing past the island. With Ariel's help, Prospero summons a storm to cause a shipwreck. The various survivors crawl to land on different parts of the island, each group believing that the others have died. On one part of the island, the young Ferdinand is washed up onto a beach. Miranda finds him and they fall in love. Prospero tests Ferdinand by forcing him to do a series of exhausting physical tasks. On another part of the island, Ferdinand's father, Alonso, king of Naples, along with his brother Sebastian, make it to land. With them are several other nobles and Antonio, Prospero's brother who had usurped him as the Duke of Milan. Prospero plots revenge on them. On a third part of the island, two other survivors, the jester Trinculo and the butler Stefano, meet Caliban. They all get drunk together. Caliban tells them about Prospero and they plot to kill him so that they can rule the island themselves. At the end of the play, Prospero allows Ferdinand and Miranda to marry. He then uses Ariel to bring all the other survivors together. He plans awful vengeance on Antonio, Sebastian and Alonso and averts Caliban's plot. At the last moment, he relents and decides to forgive them all. Antonio returns his dukedom to him and Prospero frees Ariel in gratitude for his service. They all return to Italy together, leaving Caliban alone on the island. The music you're hearing now was composed by Dmitry Volkov for Cheek by Jell's recent production. And now over to Declan and Nick. So, hello Declan and Nick. We're meeting remotely online today with a cup of tea in possibly the wettest day of the year, which I think is exactly the right day to be discussing The Tempest. How are you both doing? Very well, dude. Very well, a great squall of rain's just gone over, as you said that. Yeah, It's perfect for a play that starts with a storm. And so this is a play that you two have worked on twice. In 1988 with a British cast, and then in 2014 with a Russian one. So what is it about this play that has kept you hooked over the course of nearly two decades? Well, I think like all Shakespeare's plays, it's like a diamond. And every time you look at it, 
it reflects back a different series of colours that are changing all the time. So nothing remains fixed in a Shakespeare play when you look at it again. And for all that, they're not perfect, which is even great, because they're also, they're also like a very human artefact. But um, there are extraordinary things in The Tempest. For me, I think it's the bitterness of this old man, you know, who's got a very long list of self-pitying rages. There's a kind of myth that this was Shakespeare's last play, but that also somehow that he knew it was his last play, and that in the lines that he gives to Prosper, he makes his farewell to the theatre. I I don't think so. I think that's a little bit sentimental, actually. I, I don't think he'd have known it was his last play. I think he went up to Stratford and got caught with cholera. I think that's what happened to him. He probably died in that epidemic that spread through Warwickshire at that time. I kind of feel in my own way um, very strongly that that isn't the case because I don't think Shakespeare ever puts any of his own words into anybody's mouth because that's right totally against the spirit of Shakespeare because the triumph of Shakespeare is his capacity to totally objectify and leave himself outside the picture. I don't think there's anything particularly admirable about Prospero. He's very clever, but he's extremely bitter and he can't um, forgive his younger brother for having stolen his birthright. And it's pretty clear to me that he wouldn't, wasn't the greatest leader, that he was stuck in his books and quite easily overthrown. And in the same way, you might work out that there's probably very good reasons why young Prince Hamlet wasn't elected to be leader of Denmark, you know. Um, they think it's their birth, it's their entitlement by birth, but they got it and they weren't able to hang on to it. But there's something in the quality of Prospero for me that's very angry, and he is in desperate need of redemption, as if redemption was something that you can get that easily. It's not. It's something you have to work at every day, if you believe in it. And Prospero is just eaten with bitterness. He just goes back, he plays a violin behind himself, look at this terrible thing that's done to me, this person did a terrible thing to me, and that person did a terrible thing to me. And He builds it up into a kind of bubble of bitterness against the world, and his poor daughter's locked in with him, and that's a very unhappy position to be in, to be locked in with a bitter parent, with no one making sure that there are boundaries being observed, you know, psychological boundaries, I mean. And then at the end of the play for various reasons, many of which are mysterious, he manages to overcome that bitterness, and he does so through the act of forgiveness. And it's um, an extraordinary moment. But I think that's what the play's about. It's not about somebody who's harmoniously achieved the end of their life, and then at the beginning of it, he's kind of putting his papers in order because he's done well, and now he's coming to the end, and he's, and he's completely in control. I think that's nonsensical. It's like looking at one of those vast court portraits of Elizabeth I or Henry VIII, and they look so much in control. Of course they weren't in control. They never knew they weren't going to be murdered in their beds that night. So these great official portraits, it's not how things were. It's how they would like things to be. I think we must always, never, ever, 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 dump our common sense when we look at a play of Shakespeare. Prosper, of course, pretends to be completely in control, but somebody who is so bitter, so full of hatred, is out of control of themselves. And what about you, Nick? What's hooked you about this play for so long? Well, there are um, many things, and our approach the first time round was entirely different from the second. The first time, we took a metaphor of theatre that uh, Prospero, played by Timothy Walker, was kind of a leading actor and stayed on stage and had his makeup table on stage. And that works 
in terms of the piece, incredibly well, because in it, there's a play within a play that the mask, which was very fashionable at the time in Shakespeare's England, as a private entertainment. And everything about it has a theatrical edge to it, if you like. And um, it seemed to us at that time to work really well. But now when we came back to it with the Russian group, we were in a a beautiful remote part of Russia, which was very hot with a lake. And for a week, we were able to play by this lake with a lot of water, sand and textures like that. And it seemed very natural to bring them in very concretely into the production. So going back to that first 1988 production, we'll come back to the Russian one a bit later. This one was remarkable because it went on an international tour behind the Iron Curtain. How was this production received differently in different countries on either side of that divide? Well, in the, in in that 1988 English production, Annie White um, played the King of Naples as the Queen of Naples. And, and in England, it was very much seen as being a satire on Thatcher and Thatcherism because it was one woman surrounded by her ministers. We didn't intend that at all. However, if the audience wants to bring that to it, that's absolutely fine because we don't have a meaning in that sense, you know, um, our, the work that we do has an openness, we hope, and people bring their own meanings to it. But the idea that they have to get our intention or what were you trying to say by saying that, it's not really like that. It's more like it's an open question. Well, so, that had an irony because when we did go abroad, we went to Romania. It was an extraordinary thing because Romania was then very much in the iron grip of um, the old communist regime run by Nicolae Ceausescu, very much controlled by him and his wife, Elena. And there was a gasp when she came on. <laughs> they, they said they couldn't believe mm. that we had portrayed Elena Ceausescu yeah. so accurately. When she walked on stage with her handbag and her suit and her high heels, there was a gasp. And, and we could hear people saying, ah, Elena, Elena. And, that, and people were actually quite frightened. And the story goes that the head of the theatre was um, reprimanded for having allowed us in. In the mask, mm. um, the actors were run, ran at the audience shouting, high day freedom. Now, this turns out to mean, in Romanian, freedom, go for it. Yeah. We had no idea there was going to be a revolution, nor did they. It's not, nothing would ever have happened to me and Nick, we don't think. As always, during the late 80s, it wasn't us, it was the people we'd spoke to. They might get into trouble. And people would come and see us in our room, and they'd sort of search it for bugs and so on. So it was, it was like we were in some kind of spy thriller, you know. So this seems to be a good moment for us to jump forward in time to 2014 when you did this production in Russia. And this next question that's coming up is one that I know that you get asked endlessly, but I'm going to put it to you again. How does working with the same play in another language make you think about the text? The, the, the long way I'd like to answer that question is the important way, which is our obsession with words. When the actors are on stage and people are in the audience, it is not just the text that you understand. There's all sorts of other living things that you understand. And they get filtered out when you do film and television. There is a huge trash of human communication that is completely filtered out like that. It's like, you know, orange juice without the bits. And it makes me realise just what a word-dominated culture we live in. So whether they're speaking English, French or Russian is, yeah, it's, you know, sometimes you have to stop and every now and then a point has to be clarified. But it's like about 2 or 3% of the uh, communication between me and the actors, the actors and each other and the actors and the audience. And people continue to be very surprised saying, oh, it was extraordinary. You know, I stopped looking at the subtitles after a while and just looked at the stage. 
So all I'd like to say is that the fact that it's in a different language isn't the problem. The problem is that it's in any language because words are misleading. But by and large, it's the actual business of acting is human, you know, and, and act, the, the, the rules of acting are the same in every culture. What's different is that groups tend to have different dynamics, so different cultures of being together, very much in, in, in Russia, as you can imagine, but everywhere. People come together in different ways. But the actual basic fabric of human life, you know, my heart beats, my lungs breathe, those are absolutely the same from one culture to another. And, and over all our years working through different languages and different cultures and doing workshops and seeing audiences and different things, it is not the differences that strike us, it's what's the same. Every human being is different, but human beings tend to have certain qualities in common. And that's how I'm able to direct a play, because I can rely on those qualities. Only probabilistically, you know, I certainly can't be certain or right, but it's, it's the things that don't change that are so extraordinary. So, Nick, could you describe your design for this Russian production? The design is a wall, a whitish wall, and in it are three doors. And the doors open in two ways, so they're like um, like a, a restaurant door, you know, which swings both ways. And on the floor are, are slatted panels of wood, um, which allows us to use water because the water could flow through the floor and be collected underneath. I loved those three doors. I thought they were genius. So there's a couple of scenes in The Tempest, which in lots of productions, they put centre stage and tend to be a bit pants as a result because they're so big that it's very difficult to illustrate them. One of them's the shipwreck and the other one is the great big magic feast at the end of the play. But you staged them behind these doors so that we got these little glimpses of them as the doors flew open and closed, of a massive shipwreck going on or just glimpses of this opulent table, which forced us to use our imagination to fill in these gaps much more effectively than if you put them right in the middle of the stage. And it seemed to me that this sort of recruiting process, the way that you get the audience to plug in as co-creators to your stage images, is a bit of a bedrock of the cheek-by-jowl approach. Well, I would agree with that. But having said that, I think that is the essence of theatre because you want to make demands of the audience for them to use their imagination and just a little bit of suggestion. They can fill in whole acres of shipwreck just by a glimpse of a rope and some water dribbling from the, from the ceiling. Uh, yes, it's not a work of art, it's an act of art. The artefact, the facsimile, the production, is something which stimulates a conversation with the person who's watching it. And the actual art actually takes place in the imagination of the observer. So if the observer hasn't got the imagination or isn't able or isn't in a good place that day, and can't, then it's not actually a good work of art. You can't say, oh, it's a good work of art, but he's just in a bad mood, he couldn't take it. I, I think it's really better to think there's no such thing as a work of art. The actual moment when it becomes live is when it's watered with the imagination of the person looking at it. And then an act of art takes place. And that is the important thing. So, you know, the person watching it is absolutely central to the experience. And I think it's very dangerous to kind of hobble the audience. You know, it's like, oh, I don't know, it's like, it'd be like a parent bringing up a child and hobbling the child by making, always cutting up the meat, always feeding them, always putting their clothes on for them, always putting, you know. Actually, we have to wean, we have to grow up, and we have to be able to do things for ourselves. So I'm not saying the artist is the parent to the audience member who's the child, because that would be terrible, because that's patronising, and you lose the equality that, through which the love flows and through which the art flows. 
but so we have to be horizontal, we have to be equal to the other person. But also they have to do their bit. They're part of the act, they're generously part of the act. And if you don't put something into it, actually you get quite bored. It really strikes me, this image of it being a problem if a parent cuts up all their child's meat and um, doesn't let them fly and doesn't mm. let that child become weaned from the, their gem. dependency on the mm. adult. Because it appears so clearly in your production, your Russian production of The Tempest, where Miranda is still being washed by her father <laughs> and is still dependent it's kind of creepily dependent on him for basic adult functions, even though she's now a grown woman. Yeah. And that image was incredibly unsettling at the same time as being extremely tender. Yes. What was it about that that fascinated you? I mean, I think that the parent has to help the child and then the child has to be encouraged to walk free. But sometimes, you know, we're not so well in our heads and we like people to be dependent on us. We don't like them to be able to walk free. Sometimes we don't want to walk free because we're scared of walking free. Another thing that really struck me about the beginning of this play was that um, over the course of these podcasts, we've been talking a lot about the Titanic, about mm. films of the Titanic, yeah. the predicament of the Titanic, which yeah. was that people were dancing as the boat went down, yeah. and that the awful realisation in the audience watching a film about the Titanic is, is realising that disconnect between the terrible thing that's happening and the fact that people aren't yeah. realising it. And what I loved about your storm was that you basically staged the Titanic behind yeah, those doors. You kept on doors of waiters <laughs> kind of balancing champagne glasses and a yeah. party going on in the face of this massive storm, which was really scary, actually, to watch that going on, to understand more in the audience about what their predicament was than they understood. And again, to recruit the audience into this awful moment of the boat going down. Yes, I think the Titanic is an overwhelming myth. It's like us all going down together. <laughs> the two things you needed, one was to have a first-class ticket and the other was to admit that the boat was going down. That <laughs> it, can't, it, it can't be happening, so it isn't happening. It's a daily, it's a, it's a daily mistake, I think, we all make. You got beyond the the point of how do we stage a storm and got right into the heart of how would a human react to going down in a storm and got beyond that first step of it would be terrifying and into the real human reaction, which is that when things are terrifying, we bury our head in the sand. Yes, I think often the audience gets irritated in the first scene of The Tempest because it's impossible to work out what's going on because Shakespeare's giving you a form of chaos before he begins this rather unusually trendy play because it's after that point it's more or less written in three unities. So just remind us of the three unities for listeners who might not have heard of them before. Well, it was, it was, it was a Brock idea and it was to do with classical teaching that had got rather moulded to suit themselves. I think there's a kind of horror of that um, randomness of real life and that theatre, Brock theatre, had to be somehow ennobling and Brock theatre was definitely there to make the world a better place and we were going to get rid of chaos. And in order to do that, we have to good manners. Bad manners in the theatre is having 14-year intervals like in The Winter's Tale and massive violence on stage and subplots and comic subplots particularly were anathema. The polite, ennobling new play that was going to be educational as well, it was going to be educational, it was going to do a lot of good, that would follow strictly the three unities, which were unity of time, so the action should take place within 24 hours, unity of action, which meant there was only one main plot that we saw develop throughout the whole thing, and unity of place. And that was a kind of form 
that people imposed upon themselves. Great. So audiences tend to get annoyed with that the first scene of The Tempest, you were saying, because it's so chaotic that often it's just a lot of people shouting. Yeah, you see a lot of people running across the stage saying that aren't master and boatswain, you don't really know what's happening, you can't make out the characters. But I think that's good, because you're about to have a very long speech from Prospero after it's over, and it sets the um, chaos, movement and suffering for the play. season one of the podcast talking of this shipwreck we mentioned the way that you had developed the show in its very early stages in a process that you call going into the woods which is essentially going off grid with your actors for a development period for a few weeks into a woodland somewhere and in this process as we mentioned a bit earlier you went to a place next to a lake where there was actual water and the actors used that water uh when they were exploring the production yeah and that resulted with a lot of water on stage in this production you reminded us of the real physical dangerous presence of the elements and this water appeared everywhere you know you had the shipwrecked characters came on stage completely sodden but you also had buckets of water being thrown over people incredibly powerful moment when Ferdinand having essentially been kind of tortured and enslaved was finally allowed to have a shower in front of Prospero and showered naked with this water Mm, mm. pouring over him in this kind of ecstatic light in the middle of the stage there was something really powerful about this seeing the actors bodies actually at odds with the physical world around them not pretending or giving an illusion of it this real what you call a carnal presence could you talk a bit more about the importance of this idea of carnality of real concrete presence on stage yes it's the central mystery of theater which is the fact that um we live in an abstract world and that's why death is always so surprising and the more abstract world you live in the more the common realities of life strike us as being sort of faintly surprising it comes back to the thing i was saying about king lear when he sees edgar in the hovel that lear says thou art the thing itself um, because he understands that words collapse, because words cannot convey the carnal experience of life full stop. They simply cannot do that. However much they pretend they can, they can't. And we have to try and share the carnal experience of life as well as we can. And that's one of the things that art does. The function of art is to take us back to reality, because the delusion of real life takes us away from it. So yeah, in that respect, theatre is more real than real life, because real life isn't particularly real real life is realistic and then we have to understand that realistic is very different from real but there was something tremendously affecting about seeing a naked human body growing cold under cold water exposed in the middle of this stage as he tried to clean himself yeah there was something totally exposing about that moment that was beyond the text I think that's very important. The whole idea of, of, of nakedness and being unclothed and cold and shivering. I sometimes think that one of the reasons that we eroticize nudity in, in, in the modern world, in, in the Middle Ages, nudity always stood for innocence, never for carnality. Carnality was always expressed by luxurious clothes. But it actually, I think it's a defense against the fact that, you know, we're born naked and um, after we die, we may be buried in a lot of clothes, but they soon rot away. And there's just something very truthful about that, about our the simple interface of our body with the elements. I mean, that it is the function of all art to try and put us back into in, our human, blooded, breathing cells with bones and nerves, sinews and marrows. And, and it's so easy to abstract ourselves 
where there's a world where we don't really feel that much or we can think away our feeling or we, we're in our own personal episode of a reality TV show. So if, if we're performing, we're not really feeling it. But at the end of the day, it's a lonely journey. And when we die, you know, hopefully somebody who loves us will hold our hand if we're lucky. But we're still going to have to jump off that diving board on our own. And I think that's one of the things that happens in theatre, that we understand um, actually the isolation of feelings. And I think shivering under cold water is something that makes us feel very alone. And then makes us feel very together because we're witnessing what it means to feel alone and human in a great big group of hundreds of people. Well, exactly. And you're saying, God, do you feel that? I feel that. Really? Do you feel that? Yeah, yeah, I feel that. So do we all feel, oh God, we can't, we see these things and we feel a bit less alone because I think any good piece of art is a voyage into loneliness and it is a therapeutic effect because to be lonely amongst lonely people is, is a little bit better than being the weird one, the only one who ever feels lonely. An actor I know describes all of Shakespeare's characters as not quite like the other children. Not quite. <laughs> Well, yeah, they're all I, a bit lonely and all a bit weird and all a bit off centre, and that's the thing that makes these plays so so wonderful because we recognise our own loneliness. I, and with respect to your friend, I mean, I, I mean, I, I know I know what he means, but I don't think we should um, drink the Kool Aid that's proffered by society. All children are weird. Children, all children are lonely. All children have problem fitting in. If my work showed me anything is that we're all weird in a little way and we and we like to get over that when we go to the theatre and we see things and we, we share things together and we feel less alone. We are alone, but we feel less victim of being alone. So in 1988, you reframed the action in The Tempest by yeah. casting the King of Naples as the Queen of Naples. Yeah. And in the 2014 production, you also reframed the story somewhat mm-hmm. outside the bounds of the text in your relationship between Miranda and Caliban. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Well, they say they're going, and, they, and Ferdinand takes off Miranda with all of the notables uh, to back to civilization away from the island. They're going to leave Caliban on his own there. And they go, and then the big surprise is she runs back and screams, wanting to be with Caliban, because in many respects, Caliban's been rather more human than her own father has, you know? Also, Miranda's lived on the island with Caliban. He's been the only other human being she's known for her whole life. I don't think it'd be that easy for her to say goodbye to him. And just because she screams insults at him and he screams insults and he does terrible, threatens to do terrible things to her at the beginning, doesn't mean they don't love each other as well. And I don't think you can have that sort of propinquity without some incredibly deep attachment and love. And she will never see Caliban again. She's saying goodbye to her whole past. And even if our past is painful, we're still attached to it. And then he's left on the island. He's left on the island with Ariel, whom he can't see. But Ariel puts her hand on him. So you think Ariel will sort of in some way help him and that he's not quite alone. He's got Ariel. I mean, Ariel's not much because although Ariel's brilliant and, you know, can, you know, write out 159 equations of quantum physics in a second, um, we can't forgive anyone. And, you know... And Ariel doesn't shit, and that's why he's not human. He can't forgive, he can't can't bleed, he can't do any of those things. You know, Shylock says, do we not bleed, do we not? And that's what Ariel can't do. So it's not much that Caliban's got. He's got no human being, but he's kind of got something. You stage the play all the way through with Ariel completely struggling to understand human interactions all the way through the play, backing off whenever somebody got too emotional or, or cross and hiding in the shadows. And that it was also this last moment was the first time that Ariel tried to make an actual human connection with somebody. And it was tiny, but it felt massive to watch him do that. 
Yeah, I think the thing about Caliban and Ariel is that we all have Caliban in us. You know, we've got that ubu capacity in us. I think actually it's important to shake friends with your Caliban, but be careful not to act on it. You see, I think also we've got a bit more Ariel in us than we'd like to admit. Ariel um, is cut off from feeling. He doesn't feel anything. He doesn't understand what feelings are. It reminds me a bit like his mirror image, much more um, early writing of Shakespeare, Puck, when he says, Lord, what fools these mortals be. And we had Ariel go up and touch people's tears and understand what these jealousies and rages and desires to destroy each other. And he's completely fascinated by the whole strangeness of being human and the whole illogicality of being a human, you know. So he's he's kind of a triumph of the left brain, Ariel. You know, he's... Um, but there is a bit of Ariel, you know, we have to love the bit of ourselves that's the opposite extreme to Caliban as well, which is the bit that's cut off, the bit that doesn't cry, you know, the bit of us that scares us all. You know, maybe our rages scare us, but sometimes if we hear someone's dead and we feel nothing, that also scares us, but we don't um, admit to that so much. I think we have both of these capacities in us, and a play like this helps us to shake hands with them, really, and, and not think they're necessarily problems other people have. brings us to our last question of the podcast and i'm going to bat it at nick first which is what's your favorite moment and or line from either of these two productions of the tempest my favorite moment in the tempest which i think we've already discussed is that marvelous moment when it's completely out of the text but caliban is sitting on the ground and ariel is left and they're left alone on the island and ariel just who is sitting next to him just places his hand on his on his head and he sort of senses it. And what about you, Declan? What's your favourite moment or line? My favourite moment in all of Shakespeare is when Prospero's got all his enemies all into one place. He's got them all together and they've all done terrible things to him and he's got a list, the arm, long length of his arm, of all the injustices and how bad they've been and how much of a victim he's been of them and how bad they are and how he's going to make them really, really, really sorry and he gets them there. And he looks at Ariel and says, what would you do? And Ariel says, well, if I was a human being, I'd forgive them. Yeah, to me, that's the supreme moment in all Shakespeare, because he reminds us that if you're a spirit, you don't have this dimension. In other words, if you can't shit, you can't forgive. They're different sides of the same coin. Well, thank you so much, Declan and Nick. And please stay dry in this tempest of a day. And I shall see you next time when we're going to be talking about The Changeling. Thank you for listening to this episode of Not True But Useful. If you want to find out more about Cheek by Jell's productions of The Tempest, take a look at the archive on the website. You can find a link in the podcast notes. The theme music for this series was composed by Paddy Kaneen for Cheek by Jell's production of The Winter's Tale, with additional music in this episode by Dmitry Volkov for The Tempest. Join us next week for a dose of Thomas Middleton. And until then, stay well.